The scripture reading today is from Exodus 21 through 25. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an image in the form of anything in heaven above, or on earth beneath, or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, or any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourselves and we will listen, but do not have the Lord speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites this, you have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. Make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, your sheep and goats and your cattle. Wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we're going to continue our study of Exodus, as you just heard. Um, the word read about the Ten Commandments um, that we are looking at today. These are words from God to his people. Uh, these words indeed are highly familiar uh, in the life of the church and in many places in the world as well. We're not gonna take the deepest dive into this today. Uh, we need a, a longer sermon series for that just on the Ten Commandments. Uh, but we will focus indeed on these words that God spoke to his treasured community. But before we do that, let's pray.
Jesus, we thank you. We thank you because your name is majestic in all the earth. We adore you today. Uh, our lifeline, our way maker, and our God. We're grateful to be in your presence. You are a loving Father. Bring your words to our hearts today that we may behold wonderful truths from this portion of your law. In your name we pray, amen. Some years ago, I went skiing at Wolf Lodge in Asheville, North Carolina. I went with some friends. You know, I wasn't a, an experienced skier, but you know, I could give it a try. I kind of love being outside in the cold, which has changed over the years. Uh, loved it then, loved going down the gentler slopes. And then I noticed that there was a slope that a lot of people weren't going on, maybe not anybody. It was farther up on the mountain. So I decided to journey to the top of the mountain. I wanted to test myself to see if I could handle the more challenging slopes. I was on Mogul Mountain. You know, those moguls, those little bumps on the ski slope that's formed by the repeated turns of skiers over the same path. I've never seen anything like that before, really. Basically, these moguls were for experienced skiers, not for me who was up there tumbling, falling, skis going everywhere, stick going everywhere, falling again, getting back up, tumbling again. It was quite embarrassing. And I began to be, feel fearful up there on that mountain. No one was around and my body ached. And I thought, how am I gonna get down here? I didn't even think of just taking the skis off and walking. I thought, I'll just keep trying to go on down. And I paid a price for it. So much of life is like that, right? When we face challenging situations, and also when we face the sin of our hearts, we get caught in it. And we sometimes or don't know what to do when we are in it. It's like if there's a slope and it's going down, but you're tumbling and you wonder, how did I get into this? Why am I here? Who could I turn to? And yes, indeed, fear may come over us when we are caught in sin or the dynamic and cycle of sins. It's deceptive of lure brings us in. And sometimes it's our own pride that keeps us from turning from it. We fall again and again, tumbling on down. Life is out of control, and it feels as if there's nowhere to turn. But we learn from God's word that his love covers a multitude of sins for us. We learn from this passage, especially how God reveals his steadfast love to his people. And God spoke these words, verse 1. And then in verse 18, we get a bit more of the context of what we discovered last week in studying Exodus 19, that the people were indeed afraid and trembled. They stood afar off as they saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sounds of the trumpet and the smoking mountain. God on display so they could see him as we discovered. They not only experienced the presence of God in this way, they heard him speak to them them himself. They said to Moses, you speak to us instead of God speaking to us. There's something about being in the presence of this holy God, being before God that exposes every part of who we are. 
exposes our sin indeed. Exposes the fact that we are so fearful that we'd rather die. We think we're going to die sometimes when we encounter God in this way. But God does not come to crush us. He doesn't come to punish us when he sees our sin and x-ray vision. God does not come as we think he's going to come. We think that God is going to come and he is so mad. We hear his voice and it, or read his word and it sounds just awful in our ears. And sometimes if we are indeed caught in sin, we may say, woe is me. But if God is near you, he's ready to be tenderhearted towards you. He's not ready to crush you. As the people saw, they saw his great love for them. This is the everlasting love of God. This is God's covenant loyalty love that he gives to his people. And as we see this, it begins with grace. God tells his people in verse 2 who he is in this covenant of love. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God's sovereign work of delivering his people and bringing them to himself is what he had in mind. Closer in to God. God delivered this vast number of people. And so God is calling the people to respond to him out of faithful obedience. It is not though, as, it is not though the people should, you know, be morally right and win God's favor. No, God is saying, no, I'm saving you. I'm bringing you to me. I'm giving you my promises. I want you to obey out of the overflow of the love from my heart for you. Indeed, we have here a loving God and who is like a father to his people, but we also have here this contract. God is making a covenant with his people. God is keeping his word to the covenant of Abraham that he promised him. God told Abraham, indeed, that your people will be in, in, a, in a land not their own for 400 years, but I'm going to deliver them and bring them out. And here God initiate his covenant. Some people call it the uh, Mosaic covenant or the Sinai covenant. Uh, his commitment to these people to be his God and they be his people. And so this is like the preamble or the prologue to this covenant that God is making with them. And the words that follow are not necessarily commands. They're more like the fatherly instruction. It's more like the family conversation in the living room. This is our way of life. You know this way of life where you bring a baby home from the hospital and they kind of just swim in the water of the household? They understand a lot, you know, as the experts say, a lot more is caught than taught. And so they are catching a lot about the way of life. But you see, God's people have been in such turmoil for all those years at the hands of the Egyptian that it was as if they were not a people. It was as if they were like a sheep without a shepherd. God is having compassion on them here. They suffered so much in Egypt. And even we see it, Egypt itself is considered a house of slaves. Been 
trampled upon and oppressed. And so here are these people, but you know you feel sorry for them because it's like they have endured untold suffering. They've seen God in action. They've seen how he has delivered them and defeated the gods of Pharaoh. And at the same time, they see that God wants their hearts. He wants their hearts to be laid before them. He wants their hearts to be honest before them. He wants them to know that, hey, this is going to be your new way of life forever and ever. This is your new way of life. See, the people are not just getting rules here. They're giving, getting more of God here. The people are, are not just giving something to do. They're giving something to be with God here in these commandments. And so God comes to them with his relational love. He comes to them with his salvific love, saving them out of love. You know, this love that Ephesians 1 talk about, God choosing us in love before the very foundations of the world. So there's nothing they could do about God's loving them. He had already decided, even before he made the covenant with Abraham, even before he brought them out of, from Egypt, God has already decided in eternity past, my salvific love will be on you. This is my covenant faithfulness to you. I will uphold it. And did you know that the, the tablets, you know, were written on by the very hand of God? God speaks this love language to them on how they should be in the world, in love with God and loving others. But God wrote it down. And so that's what usually happens, you know, in, in these areas back then in the ancient Near East. Uh, if, if there's a sovereign, a suzerain, uh, a sovereign, and then there's a vassal, somebody who uh, submitted to the sovereign, they would, make, they would make this covenant, this treaty, this agreement. And so, of course, like our modern-day contracts, hey, you sign the original copy, and then I run the other one and make it through the copier and make a copy for you. But God does this. God speaks to them, but God writes down the covenant. And some scholars would say these are two sets of the covenant. They will be placed in the holy of holy places so that people would not forget God's covenant faithfulness to them, the covenant faithfulness of love. And indeed, commandments do come out of this. But first, we, we get this introduction, uh, this the preeminent prologue from God, this relational conversation of love. And of course, Jesus strengthens this. He strengthens all of God's word in the Sermon on the Mount. When he makes it clear in Matthew that, hey, do not think that I've come to do away with the law of God, to abolish it. Don't think that I've come to abolish the prophets who spoke the very words of God. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until it is accomplished. That's how committed God is to his word, to his salvific love, to his people. As one scholar said, we see that the Decalogue, another word for Ten Commandments, Deca, Ten Log, words, Ten words, the Decalogue is a comprehensive survey of our life with God 
and our life with other people. Thoughts, words, and deeds encompass the whole of life. There is nothing else. Everything is to be covered by and expressed in obedience to the law of the Lord that he has spoken. It is what he is, and we are to be what he directs. So Jesus gives us a summary of the Ten Commandments. In Matthew 22, someone, someone asked Jesus, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And, the, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus has given us this grand summary. And so as we take a look at these 10 words, the 10 commandments that God has given, we're doing a little survey here of them. Uh, they're deep in there and vast because it would take the entire scripture to unfold what God means by each one of them. And we do have a lot of that, right, in the word. But we want to take a quick look at four things here. We, we indeed want to take a look at um, God's love, how we should love others, how we should love family, and how we should love worship. Simply that. Love God, love others, love family, love worship. Love God. How does God require us to love him? We see here that God requires us to think great thoughts after him, to think highly of him, to adore him. In verse three, it says, for the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. So the Lord is requiring undivided loyalty to the only God. So at the very heart of this covenant relationship, lies this sole allegiance to the Lord. Without this, there's no foundation at all for all that follows. While all other nations around them were practicing polytheistic worship of many gods, the Lord is commanding monotheistic worship, the worship of the only Lord. Have no other gods before me. I am the only one. The second commandment, the Lord says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. And so it was commonplace in those days for nations to make carved images and channel all of their energy and belief into this little figurine. And this little figurine would become a god to them. And so when things happen, they will thank this little figurine. They will hold on to this rabbit's foot and keep it in their pocket and rub on it for good luck at the slot machines or in the office building or whatever you need it for. It became your God. This little carved image, this representation of the God that you imagine in your mind. And so God says, no, this should not be among you. You shall not bow down to them. You shall not serve them. The Lord is strict about this because this is idolatry. This is giving your heart over to another affection. This is your heart 
eventually giving yourself over to yourself because you made it up. You thought of it in your mind. And there are tons of things that we can pour our hearts into that become idolatry for us. Many things, but at the heart of it, it steals the devotion of God's people and denigrates their worship of God. Have no idols. So we are to think great thoughts after God. And so those first two commandments challenges our thought lives, of what we think about him. Secondly, we are to speak words about God. God required that we love and respect him through words as we have done already today. The first and second commandments prohibit visual representations of God. So the third zeroes in on this verbal representation. In verse seven, the third commandment, God says, you shall not make the name, take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Lord has revealed his name to Israel. The, the representative of Israel, he is a covenant keeping God. The great I am, he revealed his name. So there are to be no misrepresentations of his name or misinterpretations about his name. Further, there is to be no, no uh, sort of like uh, just taking God's name and just using it flippantly. Because God's name is the nature of who he is. It can't be separated from him. So we can't make promises uh, in the name of God and pretending like it's God who is, is, is the one uh, that's behind whatever you want to happen. That's what he says here because God has spoken on his own behalf about what he's going to do and his faithfulness to his people. You know, a few years ago, um, there was a guest on this hit radio show, The Breakfast Club. Uh, it became obvious that this guest only arrived for one reason, and that's to clear his name. Uh, I don't know what the backstory is, but this, this guest, you know, he was a, a popular music producer, and, and uh, you know, he was great in his own eyes and everything, had some accomplishment. You know, his lifestyle, you know, tells a different story. But he shows up for this interview, and he just kept repeating the same thing over and over. So I'm going to need you guys to put some respect on my name. Kept saying that over and over again, put some respect on my name. And then the interview ended in maybe like three minutes because he became so upset. He's like, I'm not saying it again, but he said it again. And so uh, if imperfect people care about how their name is used and at time abused in the public square, how much more God cares about his name? and how it is used, how he is thought about, what we say in his name. What we say in his name needs to line up with what he has already said about who he is. Lastly, do great deeds, God requires. God requires that his people do great deeds that he has set for them. In the fourth commandment, God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy this is one way to be holy as God is holy. Keeping the Sabbath, the Lord created the world in six days and on the seventh day he rested from his work. So we are to be like God, refraining from work one day out of the week to take 
arrest, to reflect upon his beauty, to reflect upon his work, to reflect upon the fact that we are exercising our holiness as we take a Sabbath day, which is difficult to do uh, at times when you get so busy and, and it's difficult to think about how to do it, but this is one way God is saying, hey, you wanna be like me, be holy, take a Sabbath rest and be holy like me. Love God. We are to love God. We are to love others. How does God desire that we love others? We have to do the deeds of unity. Commandments six through eight. We have here that we shall not murder because God places a high priority on human life. God created us. He's the author and perfecter of our lives. So we need to ask the question, God, what do you want us to do with human life? How do you want us to see it? It's a human life that God has made. God does not, you know, pull in the punches on this. He places a high priority on this. No one has the right to take the life of another. This is what God says. Each person belongs to God and made in his image. And this is so difficult for us in our day and age because there are things that we do and don't understand about what this commandment entail. But of course, we, you know, we know Jesus said we should not murder, but he cleared it up, didn't he, in Matthew 5. And he says, hey, if, if anyone, any one of you is angry with his brother, we'll be liable to judgment. So Jesus is telling us that murder begins at the heart level. It's not just through our outwardly actions. It's at the heart level as well. The seventh command, you shall not commit adultery. The importance of relational purity is important to God. And God upholds our relational lives. And he upholds relationships, marriages, friendships, God desires to, that there be an establishment of harmonious relationships and that no one in the community is to undermine that by being unfaithful to each other in community, by being unfaithful ultimately to God. He sets the biblical parameters on our own relationships. This is how important it is to him that we have this unity of heart before God. And God respects other people's property. That's why he says, you shall not steal. And this is indeed a way of thinking about how God provides for us by his grace. So that we don't have to steal from another. So we don't have to steal with our eyes. We don't have to steal with our hands, with our bodies. We don't have to steal because he has given us enough. At times, life does feel lacking. And we can justify any of these commandments. And of course, there, there are nuances and things of that nature. But this is what God wants for us, to live a life rich in love towards one another, that this will be the norm following his commands. You know, I, was, I learned about this inmate, you know, who was causing some ruckus. Um, this inmate, you know, after he, the judge acquitted him, of all his charges against him, he refused. He demanded to go back to prison. Everybody was like puzzled. 
Instead of the usual jubilation that follow any ruling or discharge and acquittal, the inmate in question headed straight back to prison, only to be intercepted by a prison guard who reminded him he was free to go home. You're free to go. You don't have to be here. So the eyewitnesses were puzzled. He said he was not going anywhere. He demanded to be allowed re-entry back into prison. What seemed like a mild drama turned into an absurdity when the calm of the court premises was shattered by the free prisoners, shouts and pleas to be allowed to go back into the prison. He thrashed about and he struggled with several prison officials. He was fighting to get back into jail. That's how it is when we don't love one another, right? We're fighting for our imprisonment. We're fighting for our disunity. We're fighting uh, not to be free, but to be in bondage from one another. Because when we harm each other, there's shame that comes and we begin to hide from each other. But God is saying, no, I'm calling you out so that you can show love to one another and be free with each other. Be free with one another. And God is calling us to speak truthfully about others. That's what commandment nine is about. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, telling the truth, not being deceptive. And he's calling us to think well of others with our minds in commandment 10. You shall not covet your neighbor's house You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox, his donkey, anything that is is your neighbor. Shall not covet. God has given us enough because coveting has to do with idolatry. Wanting to behold something and give your heart to something other than God. So all of these commandments, they're wrapped together. And so when we begin to uh, love God, we are loving our neighbor. When we, we begin to love our neighbor as God has declared, we begin to have a warm heart towards God. They, they work together synergistically. And so we have this love for God, love for others. But see, right in the middle is love for family. When God says, honor your mother, your father, and your mother, in your thoughts, in your words, in your deeds. You see, the, the nucleus of the family, what happens here is, is, is just another arena for us to begin to love God and to love others. You see, yourself, your self-love is included in this as you give respect to your father and to your mother. So after our obedience to God in commandments one through four, we must consider it our primary duty to care for our family before considering obligation to others in commandments six through 10. It makes sense to us. Like, I need to do well for my family. Well, not that one person because they hurt me so bad. So how am I gonna get over that? Well, that takes a lot of prayer, right? So God is not saying be flippant about this, but he is serious about how we will honor father and mother and bring reconciliation in those relationships. And sometimes that does not happen. But there's something in our hearts that we need to move towards and fight for in that if we can. So it's almost as if God has given us these three concentric circles 
where love for God, his love for us, our love for him is right in the center. Then it moves out to family. Then it moves out to the wider community. But you see, there are these arrows that flow out from God's love for us and our love for each other, our love for family, our love for community, and the arrows coming back in as well to loving family and God. A few years ago, a friend of mine, he had teenage kids at the time. And, you know, he had a busy schedule and, and he knew that the family needed an opportunity to bond and to, you know, make good lasting memories. I mean, he had four kids under the age of 16. And so three teenagers and, and just bonkers in their family and he's working all the time. And so they decided to, to head for the river. They were gonna take a camping trip, you know, to re receive this refreshment that he was hoping for. So Mike, his wife, and all four kids, you know, they were there, they hiked, and one day they decided to get in the river. They wanted to cross over to the other side. And as they began to go, they were there in the, in the middle of the river, and Mike's foot got stuck in between a rock, a couple of rocks in the riverbed. And see, the current was so strong that he could only keep his nose slightly above water just to get a short breath. He, you know, he, he wasn't as strong to keep holding himself up. He was getting worn down as he was trying to lift up his nose to breathe and the river would flow over him and he would do this over and over again. And his son, who was out swimming with them against the currents, finally got over to him, his 16-year-old son, got over to him and began to try to help, like keep him up, swim and keep him up so he can catch his breath and and not have this water going up his nose. And then he began to help him, you know, unlodge his foot from between these rocks. After that event, Mike said, we became closer. We faced something together as a family. We recognized how much we loved each other. We recognized how much love was missing through the bickering and the fighting and the sarcasm that we had towards one another. He said, I recognize that I, I, I needed that trip for myself. I didn't know I was gonna have my life after that, but I'm grateful for my son, that he came and helped rescue me from that river. It brought about a deeper and a lasting bond because it helped them to remember love, love one another. So through our families, we can experience indeed some of the deepest support imaginable, but also the profound hurts. Husband and wives can live for years without addressing painful comments made to one another or broken promises. Fathers can lead their kids into anger. Mothers can blame their children when it's their own troubles that they're disappointed in. Children can easily disrespect their parents and dishonor them through failing to listen to their directions. God knew, God knew that the family union would be one of the hardest places to live freely in love. I'm not saying that some families don't do this. Some families do uh, see, see each other and think fondly of one another. But it doesn't become, come without its challenges. 
So maybe you're someone here today where uh, that's been your story. You had to sustain years of hurt and unreconciled relationships in your family. You may be a son or a daughter that is not willing to have a conversation with your parents yet to reconcile those old wounds. You simply want to forget about it and move on. Maybe you are a father or a mother that is harboring bitterness in your heart towards your kid. You're a child that is stubborn and not flexible. But could it be that God is calling you as a parent to be the most flexible one? Could it be that God would be calling you as a parent to be the chief repenter? Could it be that God would call you as a parent to be the most weak and needy so that you can come to him, so that you can go with those that you hurt to ask for forgiveness? We all can stand a chance to love better. And this goes for our family, church family as well. Thanks be to God that we do in this church family have an older brother who can sympathize with our weaknesses. We have a heavenly father who has never harmed us. So many of us walk around as if God has disappointed us and we're mad at him. And we're upset to think that we're not in his good graces. We think God is upset with us. God simply says to any one of us today, I love you. I am with you. I have given my son for you. I've given you my best gift. I have poured out the Holy Spirit in your hearts so that you will have the guarantee that you are my son, you are my daughter, and nothing can change that love. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. So God has not given his people a word so that they present themselves right before God. The fact that God has given his people the law shows that we need his love. It points to the greater love, Christ, our representative, who is able, stronger, mightier, to carry out perfect obedience in all that God requires. He has done it. He makes these applications to our hearts. And so through that, we can overflow this love to others. Through that, we can love worshiping God. You see there in verse 24, God giving them instructions on worship. And he tells them over again, hey, don't, don't, don't worship idols here. And even uh, don't begin to make an idol, I mean an altar, out of anything except the earth. Even the stones that you find in the earth, don't carve them and make them smooth. Don't make even steps up to my altar. God has given them these instructions because he wants them to be free to worship him and not caught off guard by idolatry, which, is he, which he has to uproot out of their hearts and will do it. God wants them to worship him. And this is what God says right there in verse 24. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. 
I love this verse because it kind of, it ties into the verse about uh, the Sabbath. God says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. The same word, remember. And would the Sabbath be a place where, where God calls his name to be remembered? That he's the God who saved you? That he's the God who brought you out of bondage of sin? That he's the God who's given Christ on the cross to die on your behalf, that your sins may be forgiven. These things are what we remember as we come to worship. And God says, I will cause my name to be remembered and I will come so we can take heart that he is with us when we worship and that he blesses us beyond what we can imagine or think he is doing. You know, after I after I reached the end of Mogul Mountain, I was able to ski with ease, and I went straight to the ski lodge. <laughs> there I was met by other skiers that warmed themselves by the fire. Away from the cold, away from the turmoil, in my case, of skiing. So we see here the Israelites. They're brought to a mountain by the lover of their souls. He was there not to punish them, not to crush them, nor to put heavy burdens on them. He was there to show them his heart as he shows us today. Through these words of God, we see the heart of God. He is our sole Lord and God. There is no other. He's our creator. He knows how we are made. He is the love of our lives. He loves sinners. He has forgiven us. So God wants a relationship with us, and we recognize we are unworthy, but he is near us. Let's accept that love. Let's obey his voice by drawing near to him as he's drawn near to us. Let's live in light of his words to love others, to love family, to love worship. Let's fear God above all else. Little children, let's keep ourselves from idols. Let's pray. Jesus, oh, what a wonderful name. Thank you for blessing us. You promised this. You promised that when we draw near to you, you will bless us. So thank you, Lord, for being ever so deeply committed that we are blessing your name. Amen. <laughs>